And good afternoon. It's Alida Robinson and Samuel Chisichetti from A Reasonable Christianity and you're listening to 105.1 Life FM, Bendigo's Positive Choice. And we're here again, Samuel, to chat about God. Yes. Our regular Q&A, uh, and it is a, a tremendous blessing uh, to be again uh, here to, to, uh, together in the studio on a Sunday like this, very exciting. It is very exciting. Yes. Slightly different time slot. Yes. Which uh, which is now our new time slot, so that's yes. okay. And uh, and hopefully our regular listeners will be able to pick up this particular program yes. as we move forward. So, Samuel, we've been looking at uh, a variety of arguments to answer the does God exist question. Yes. Um, you looked at um, the cosmological argument mm-hmm. and we, we looked at the Kalam and the Leibniz yeah, Leibniz. Leibniz, yes. yeah, something like that. <laughs> we looked at uh, the moral argument. Yes. And today we're going to look at the design argument, mm-hmm. 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 which is um, that's sort of something that sort of started to creep into schools a little bit, didn't it? The, 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 with creation theology and everything else, they, they tried to enter that in so that people could learn that as part of uh, their science, uh, to have a design for the world to be created as well as evolution. From my memory, that sort of snuck in for a little while, but I'm not sure that it's still hanging in there. Right. Now, actually, uh, you know, for uh, a, a number of years in the past, in the 60s, um, you know, the, the worldview that was taught, at least in our schools, uh, was creation. That creation was uh, taught. Evolution had already started being taught then, uh, but it's, uh, you know, somewhere around the 60s, Especially in America, where basically teaching creation was removed from from the curriculum, and I don't know about Australia. I don't know when that happened, uh, but I think as you always say, they say when America sneezes, the world catches a cold. Mm. So things always start in America, and then everybody justify, "Oh, look, the Americans are doing it." And I so, do remember. That coming in in year seven and year eight when I started yes. high school. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, yes. It's because people start to doubt the idea that, no, look, uh, you know, the, the world was not designed, there was no cre- you know, creation, uh, was no longer making sense. So, even when we say, uh, you know, design, uh, most people can start to think, oh, we, we are, uh, you know, talking about creationism. Uh, well, that, not that any ism, creationism is mm. bad. Don't get me wrong, but it's things start to get looked at in a pejorative way. I, I noticed something that is happening in our discourse today is there are two ways somebody can deal with your point of view. One, they can deal with your point of view by taking it seriously and dissecting and assessing it, or they can just ridicule your point of view and dismiss it. And it seems to me that in our day and age, uh, people tend to take the second one. Look. You know, you have a point of view about something that they okay, they just ridicule it. They might say it's anti-science or it's not, it's unintelligent or it's bigoted, or you know, and and, and, and unfortunately, uh, you know, for the for the sake of the Christian faith, not engaging robustly, uh, you know, on 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 those areas where the world was moving, especially towards science and stuff like that. Uh, for some time, even though the most of the discoveries of science were led by Christians, I can I can name a number of them. You know, Galileo, Kepler, Louis Pasteur, Isaac Newton. You know, I can name a number of even right now, Francis Collins, for example. 
the man who did the, the, the Human Gen- Genome Project. Uh, so we, we have a lot of scientists right now mm. uh, who are at the cutting edge of science, who are, you know, believers, Christian believers. And But what, what happened is generally, at least across our secular you know, um, university systems, the, uh, the Christian worldview was ridiculed and basically kicked out. Mm. And so when we say the design argument, somebody might think, oh, well, oh, they're talking of creationism. Creationism is looked at pejoratively now, and so therefore not even given a, a, a space at the table of discussion. But what we're going to be talking about the design argument today uh, is actually something that is well-recognized within the mainstream scientific data. This is going to be one of the most technical, but also one of the most amazing arguments that could be made. Mm. Why? Because it starts with the idea that the world looks design. The appearance of design, is it actually design? So is there any other explanation to this appearance of design? So they, they basically, uh, the, 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 the technical term is a teleology. Uh, this is called a teleological argument. Uh, the, the word tele, uh, teleo, if you will, teleo, uh, is destination, is a purpose in mind. Okay? And so if we say the word was teleologically, is uh, you know, there's, there's a teleology to the world, it means it looks as though there was design in the mind of a designer who designed the world. Mm. So that's where the argument goes. And interesting enough, this one is not going to be evolution versus creation. No, this actually goes further. Uh, It takes a a, a bigger uh, issue. Like, for example, evolution would need to start with life already being there for that life to adapt and evolve. Yes. This one is the question to whether life at all could exist on our planet. And so that's where the teleology came, comes in. And so just to remind our, our, our listeners, you know, throughout these discussions, we have used deduction, we've used induction, not induction as much so far, we will. We've used deduction and we've used abduction. In other words, you've got a set of data, you go, what's the best explanation? Remember the Leibnizian um uh, you know, uh, cosmological argument used abduction. Okay, you, you come across the universe. It's a piece of data. It's here. What's the best explanation for it? Yeah. And so we then look at the range of explanations and then start to find out which one is the best explanation so that if somebody had to reject that explanation, they have to give the reasons why they think the explanation is inadequate. They can't just dismiss an explanation and think that's enough. Mm. And so... In that sense, we said, whether you look at all the, the, the fact that the world began to exist begs for an explanation. And the explanation is a transcendent creator, because whatever begins to exist has a cause. Mm. That was your first kalam, right? Yes. Uh, you know, the universe is obviously here. Why is there something rather than nothing? What's the explanation? The lab needs Abductively, Yes, the best explanation for the existence of the universe is not that the universe exists eternally. It's not that the universe is just there as a brute fact. It's that the universe <laughs> was created by yes, transcendent yeah, God. That's right. All right. The moral argument goes this way. Well, what's the best explanation for the fact that we have a moral sense that is mind independent from the subject? 
it's an objective moral. Like the fact of torturing a child for the sheer fun of it is different from nurturing a child and looking and loving and nursing a child. And a person who says there is no difference here is as morally mistaken as the person who says 2 plus 2 equals 6. Yeah. So what's the best explanation for that? Then we tried society, we tried law, we tried, you know, culture, we tried, you know, uh, you know, all sorts of things. And the best explanation was God. Yes. There was something above us yes, that set the moral exactly. standard. Yeah. So you notice there's a, a huge abductive uh, process of reasoning, which is the way the detectives do their jobs, right? Yes. Yeah. And so today uh, we're looking at, think about it when you, uh, there's no mind no persons who, if you get out in the middle of the night and all the lights are off, I grew up in Africa, here sometimes the, you know, the, your, your electricity might interfere with, with your capacity to look at the wonders of the universe. Yeah. Uh, you know, you get up and there's this shining moon and there are stars everywhere. And, and actually, when you're here in Australia, there are times, I've got, we've got a friend actually here in, uh, in, uh, in Bendigo. Uh, you know, he does an amazing work. Uh, Richard, uh, Richard Tatty. Richard Tatty, yeah. Yes, he wouldn't mind me photographing uh, the night a shout, sky. <laughs> you know, a shout out to him. Mm. Richard does some of the amazing, amazing night sky photos. Yeah, beautiful. Where if if he, you know, he goes to do photos of the Milky Way and and the galaxies, you you look at the beauty. Mm. And so all that beauty out there, the universe, the planets, and so on and so forth, well, they're quite marvelous, and we. That's what a cosmo- cosmologists do. We wonder to what's the best explanation for the existence of all this? Mm, exactly. Did this all this happen haphazardly? Or was it necessarily just there? Did it poof just appear? Or <laughs> was it designed? Yes. And that is, I'm using an abductive process here. Mm. I mean, was it designed? Is there a designer to this thing? Or did it just happen by accident? Mm. That's another explanation. Or is it just necessarily there, like numbers? <laughs> you couldn't imagine them not being there. They're just there. Yeah. And, and so those three possible explanations is what we're going to look at. We've got to assess the data we're looking at first and then dig deep into it because I want to see the wonders of the universe within which we live. All right. Well, that's going to be an exciting process that we're going to be part of uh, Uh, this afternoon so um, stay tuned after this song from Young Oceans we will continue on with our discussion on design Let my eyes see nothing Let my eyes see nothing But your glory My Lord let my eyes see nothing, let my eyes see nothing but your glory, my Lord. Let this heart not wander, let this heart not wander from your mercy, my Lord. Let this heart not
Beautiful song. You're listening to 105.1 Life FM. Yes. Samuel, we're talking about the design theory, the design, design argument. argument. Not, design it's not argument. a theory. Yeah, the design, design argument yes. about uh, the existence of God and yes. the existence of everything, really. The life, the universe yes. and everything. Life in, in the universe. <laughs> now, let me give you some facts and you start writing this down. For example, scientists recognize that our galaxy, so we are... Our, the pl- planet Earth exists and our solar system exists in a galaxy. The galaxy is an ensemble of stars. And so, and the galaxy exists in a Milky Way. Mm-hmm. And so, the sun is a star. Okay? Mm-hmm. Our sun here is a star. Mm-hmm. And as a man's star, it has planets that revolves around it. Now, our own galaxy, scientists reckon, has about a hundred billion stars. Wow. That's a big number. It is a big number. Now, consider that the entire universe, according to our best scientific data, is comprised of a hundred billion galaxies. Try to go a hundred billion stars in one galaxy, mm. then you have a hundred billion galaxies. Which each one has a hundred billion stars. Now that's starting to get to an incomprehensible, incomprehensible number. So, as I was saying, the sun is a star. And often, when you think the sun has got, you know, we, you know, we have planets that revolves around the sun. And, and the earth, the blue planet upon which we are, mm. is one of those stars, right? So if there are 100 billion stars in a galaxy and the star, the sun is a star, it would follow logically that there would be all tons of planets revolving around all the other stars. There are 100 billions of them. And then if you go galaxy by galaxy, you will have, at least this is the mathematical calculation, is that there are at least 700 quintillion that means 700 followed by 20 zeros. Goodness me. Mm-hmm. 700 quintillion planets. So our planet, Earth, is one in 700 quintillion planets. And so it would reasonably go right. If there are so many stars, so many galaxies, and so many planets, of course, given the sheer numbers, there should be obviously planets like ours. Mm. With maybe with millions. Life on it. With life on it. Or probably billions of them. Yeah. So this launched what was called the SETI project mm-hmm. Search for Extra Intelligence, uh, Extraterrestrial Intelligence. So the SETI project was launched in the 60s, and, and that's all sort of radio wave frequencies that were sent into space to try to see whether they could 
capture any signal, any intelligible signal from the universe. And, and, and it was just based on the sheer simple logic that if you have this many stars and this many planets and this many galaxies, it will just about the sheer number. But now, it has come, the scientists have then come to realize that it was not just based on the number of planets, mm. that there are a number of conditions that must be met for a life-permitting universe. Mm. Like, not, not just simply a, a, where, where life can be, but a, 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 a life-permitting universe. So what I'm going to do at the moment, just bear with me. This is going to be science. You know, you don't ex expect, you know, when a preacher is answering questions on a Sunday, <laughs> on a Sunday program and start to talk to you about science and numbers. And, and, but but that's, that's the whole point. We'd wandered away from that. Mm. And so uh, the secularist just jumped on. And, and, and so let me give you a bit of perspective on numbers so that you can see. Think about the numbers of seconds in the history of the universe, if you consider, at least if you're a young Earth uh, creationist or an old Earth creationist, let's, let's leave that in-house in, in, in debate for a moment. Let's assume that the universe is 13.5 billion years. On that assumption, the number of seconds that have gone past since the universe began is 10 to the power of 17. That means 10 followed by 17 zeros. Okay? It's an incomprehensible number. Now, the number of subatomic particles in the entire known cosmos is said to be around 10 to the power of 80. That's 10 followed by 80 zeros. Okay. It is numbers that you cannot Fathom or comprehend, right? Mm -hmm. uh, let, let's, let's, let's keep going. I, I want to give you a few more. I want to sort of go from the macro to the micro. But maybe if I started with the micros. So uh, there are a number of things that need to be, to be put together for, you know, at least a planet like ours to be able to, to sustain life. Yeah. And what we'll do over the next probably couple of weeks is I'm going to pick those things, even things that you interact with that you don't realize how precious these things are, uh, if they were not the way they are, life would not exist. Yeah. All right. So to do that, let's start to give some sort of, um, uh, okay, let, let me give, give you just one random fact. One random fact. Two, at least from our Earth point, point of view. The number of sort of space junks, asteroids, and stuff like that, that are circulating all around, okay, uh, that could hit this planet where we live on and obliterate every life as we know. Asteroids that are far bigger mm. than ours are quite numerous. And then, thank God for Jupiter, for example. Jupiter is this giant, giant planet with a huge, huge, massive orbit which is huge, huge, huge gravita 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 gravitational uh, force. It's actually called the, 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 so it's like for our solar system, it's the solar system vacuum system. Okay. Because Jupiter is a thousand times bigger than the Earth. And so it sucks almost all, all the kind of your junks that could have come and hit us, Get sucked by Jupiter. Okay. 
So if there were no Jupiter in our solar system right now, the Earth would be gone, wiped. There would be no life here. For example, think about the moon. See, uh, the Earth axis is tilted. And that's what causes our tidal waves and the change in seasons and stuff like that. Summer, winter, you know. If we didn't have that moon, the moon we have, that moon we watch, you see there. If it wasn't there, basically the entire planet would not have the change of seasons we have. The whole place would be pretty much frozen. Would be like Mars. Frozen planet. Okay? And so, that's just, just that, let us think in for a moment. If you remove just one planet, Jupiter, we're gone. If you remove the moon, we're gone. And I'll give you these random, you know, uh, f your facts as we go throughout the program. But let me do with you a bit of physics 101, okay? Mm -hmm. um, there are things that, are, that basically are what, what makes our universe. And... Our universe is made of particles. At the best basic level, this is, was an article written by my friend, a friend of mine, uh, Tim Barnett. Uh, he's a Canadian. He writes for, he's, he's, he's a speaker for Stand to Reason. And he writes this amazing piece. So I want to read, I want to quote some of his writings. Uh, you know, Tim writes that at the most basic level, the world is built from a handful of block building blocks. At one time, we believed that the smallest building blocks were atoms. And, but however, today we know that the atoms are made up of subatomic particles, like, for example, neutrons and protons and electrons. If, you know, everybody would, would understand those languages if you've ever studied physics. Protons, which are positively charged, and neutrons, uh, which are the neutrons because they're neutral, mm -hmm. they have no charge, and compose, uh, compose of nucleus of the atom. So the negatively charged electrons orbits this nucleus. So, now, you see, you sort of started working. Okay, well, so these three particles are responsible for the for building the ninety-two naturally occurring elements that you find in your periodic table. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and as well as the unstable element that you know can be created in a laboratory. So, uh, think about your periodic table. You've got all these uh, chemical elements and stuff so like that. Okay. So, uh, you've got stable elements like carbon atoms. Uh, they're made of six protons and six neutrons and six electrons. Now, but if you go even further, while electrons seem to be fundamentals, neutrons and protons can be broken into smaller parts. And the particle accelerators that the scientists use can break these, and then they break them into what is called quarks. And so this quarks is a, is a, is a combination of up quarks and down quarks. So the protons are basically comprised of, uh, up, you know, two up quarks and one down quarks. So neutrons are composed of two down quarks and one up quarks. Now, these particles, the up and the down quarks, and the electrons make up everything we see in the universe. Molecules, mice, maple trees. Milky Way, galaxies, everything <laughs> starts from these subatomic particles. Okay. Now hold that as a thought. Yes. And we're going to start digging. <laughs> we'll, start, we'll start digging after we've had a listen to Will Morrison and Who You Say I Am. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? 
was lost, but he brought me in His love for me Oh, his love for me Who the sun sets free Oh, he's free indeed I'm a child of God Yes, I Ransom me, his grace runs deep. While I was a slave to sin, Jesus died for me. Yes, he died for me. Who the Son sets free, oh, is free indeed. I'm a child. a little bit more of a laid-back version of that song, isn't yes, it, Samuel? Yes, it's quite an interesting version there. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we do sing that one. and uh, Quite a bit more up-tempo than that. Differently. Okay. Yeah, very differently. <laughs> well, before the break, you were uh, you were breaking things down to molecules the and particles. And, yeah, and the things that actually put everything together and it's yes. the basis for everything we know from the smallest yes, to the to biggest. Yes, the biggest, exactly. So think about it this way, yeah, just picking up where we were. Uh, so these particles, the up quarks and the down quarks and the electron, yeah, I said it make, makes everything uh, from molecules to mice to maple trees <laughs> to Milky Ways and everything. Mm. Now, each of these particles has a distinct mass. Okay, it's called a mass. Mm-hmm. 
And the mass of an electron is approximately 9.1 times 10 to 31 kilos. So, kilograms. So, it's a very, very small, small mass. That's a very small mass. Now, likewise, the mass of the up and the down quarks are approximately 4.1 uh, to the power of 10 to 30 uh, kilograms. Now, think about it. This is called in physics the 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 uh, the you know uh, unit of measurement here is the mega electron volt per speed of light squared. Now let's not take it too technical. Yeah, no, <laughs> you're getting very not, technical. Yeah, yeah. So there are two scientists who've written a book that Tim actually quotes. Uh, it's called A Fortunate Universe: Life in a Finely Tuned Cosmos. Mm. And the two scientists is Geraint Lewis and Luke Barnes. Uh, Luke Barnes, Barnes, Luke Barnes. Uh, and Barnes is B-A-R-N-E-S. And Geraint is G-E-R-A-I-N-T, mm -hmm. Lewis. Now, these two scientists demonstrate how finely tuned the mass of these small particles must be for there to be life at all in the universe. Here is consider how uh, the universe would be different if the mass of the up and the down quarks were significantly different. He said what they argue. In fact, it is rather easy to arrange for a universe to have no chemistry at all. Grab a hold of the particle mass dial and let's sort of turn it up or turn it down to create a few universes, they posit. So what happens if we change the mass of the three fundamental particles? Okay. So, they tried the experiment. Mm -hmm. To create a hydrogen-only universe. See, our, our universe is a carbon-based universe. Mm -hmm. And we have oxygen here. If you were in a room where there was only, only hydrogen, you'd die. Like, there's no, there's no hydrogen-based life. So, if you want to create a, a, a universe that's got only hydrogen, we increase the mass of the down quarks by at least a factor of three. Just that little tiny particle... Just increase it just three times. What you will have is here, you will have no, no neutron will be safe. Even inside the nucleus, neutrons decay uh, will happen. And once again, you can kiss your chemistry books goodbye. Mm. There will be no chemistry. Uh, as we will be left with only one type of atoms and one chemical reaction. That's hydrogen. So you can just, that little tiniest part. You just, just increase its mass three times. There you go. No, by three points, not three times. Yeah, three yeah, times. Yeah, oh, three times. Yes. If you okay. increase its mass three times, mm. you're, 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 you've got only hydrogen here. Mm. Gone. Yep. So they, they, they continue to say, well, there's another number of ways to create a universe that contains nothing but neutrons. So no atoms, no chemical reaction, nothing. If you think of hydrogen universe... It's rather futureless. You know, you know, it's instead of the increasing the mass of the quark for by you know, if you did it, increase it by a factor of six. The result is that the proton falls apart. And in reversal of what we see in our universe, the proton, including a proton buried in a apparent safety of the atomic nucleus, decay into neutrons, positrons, and neutrinos. I'm going to just stop there and, and, and try to let you have that sink in for a moment. If you can 
it's like, well, okay, if you build a house, uh, you increase the size of your house three times. Well, what happens? You're still living. Yeah, and you're in a bigger house. Bigger house, right? <laughs> yes. I'm just trying to say, well, you increase the size of your iPhone, iPhone three times. Well, nobody dies. Nobody's gone nowhere. But the smallest particle that is at the fundamental structure of our universe, if it was just increased three times, which sounds benign, mm. the universe is gone. Yeah. That's how finely tuned the, this is. And let's try to sort of visualize that. Um, how finely tuned are these values for life? You know, consider, for example, uh, the, the state of Queensland. Divide it into a dashboard, and which will have about, you know, probably more than you know, 600 trillions of, you know, uh, centimeter squares. And now, imagine you get blindfolded and you get given a dot. And they say there's a bullseye, which is just one centimeter square. And that you have to throw that blindfolded and hit that bullseye randomly. Mm. If that was an experiment we like on TV, you know, you, you put that there and say, okay, hit that. And then you go, people are going to say, well, uh, come on. You must have picked. Like, look at the size area. How many times would you have to do it to fluke it to now, start with? Tell me, <laughs> yeah. if you threw that 10 times and you still hit that same bullseye, would, you, would, you, would anybody think this is accidental? Mm. Right? Think, think about another, <laughs> another way of looking at it. Let's say you're playing the heads and tails sort of kind of uh, game, mm-hmm. and you throw, uh, you know, and you get heads a million times in a row. Would somebody look over? Oh, look, just coincidence, uh, happy accident. Well, no, okay. Mm-hmm. So the precision with which these numbers must be met for life to be is absolutely extraordinary. Mm. Now, let me, that, that's just, I'm giving you this to, to make you think for a little bit. Let's go to the biggest, b- biggest item. When the universe began, if, if you accept at least that the universe began to exist, at least the b- biblical creationists and the Big Bang theorists agree on the fact that the universe began to exist. Yeah. They disagree only on, you know, how, how long ago was that, okay? Or whether the Big Bang happened at all, and that, that's become another you know, sort of the creations might have a bit of an issue. Right? Put that aside. Just assume the universe began to exist again by the process of the Big Bang. Now, the to be able to have a universe that is life-permitting, there are some fundamental constants and quantities that must be balanced on a razor's edge for a life-permitting universe to exist. For example, if you look at the gravitational constant, like the force of gravity, when it is expressed as a mathematical uh, equation, it has a number of constants and quantities that must already be put in there for the laws of nature to then act on nature for the universe to be life-permitting. And so if you take those numbers, like the you know, the strong and weak nuclear, nuclear force or the gravitational constant, the big items that actually makes the universe be life-permitting. If you could change the, uh, the, let's say, the gravitational constant by a factor of one part 
to 10 to the factor of 100. That's one followed by 100 zeros. Think about it this way. You take a, let's say you take a piece of paper. You break it into two. You've got, you know, half, half. Break it again. Break it again. Break it until you get to the tiniest, the minutest, where you get as many pieces as one followed by a hundred zeros. Right? Mm-hmm. And then, and consider that's the tiniest change you could make to the gravitational constant for the universe to collapse back on itself. It's like the numbers must be so balanced that it is on a razor's edge that if even a little change would make the universe collapse on itself. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. And so it's so amazing that uh, the, the Sir Roger Penrose, who is a British mathematician, is uh, a mathematical physicist, is a philosopher of science, and he is a Nobel Prize winner in physics, has estimated that the odds of a universe early law entropy, which means the initial condition of the law entropy in the universe, occurring by chance somewhere on the order on the order of one chance is on the order of one chance out of 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. Mm. It's a number so incomprehensibly large that to call it astronomical is an understatement. Mm. So what leads us to ask the question, did these numbers get really balanced on a razor edge by chance? Yes. Well, the chance hypothesis doesn't really, doesn't really cut it. And and and, and, and let, let, let me um, you know give you you know a couple of quotations from very well respected scientists. Maybe I'm thinking it's because so that you can digest them. It's good if I because I want to give you they're going to go bang 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 bang, and then I'm going to come to the conclusion of is this well designed or not? Yes. So we're going to. Just pause it there. All right. And I'll give you them bang, bang, bang. All right. So people can get their heads around some of the figures that you've been talking about. Yes. Um, those that are not as mathematically minded maybe <laughs> as you are <laughs> uh, can sort of start really trying to visualise exactly what that looks like. And in the meantime, we'll have a listen to Children of Inheritance singing Sit at Your Feet.
You're listening to 105.1 Life FM. Samuel, you're just about to hit us with a few really strong points and then give us some meat to (laughs) to chew on till we wait for the second episode next week. Exactly. I was reading uh, Eric Metaxas. Uh, Eric Eric, uh, is a fine writer. Uh, He'd written in 2015... Uh, this article, I think it's 2014 or 2015. I remember actually posting it on Facebook then. Uh, an article uh, on, you know, the uh, that science now is headed toward the direction that God designed the universe. Mm-hmm. And in that article, here's what Eric writes. That the fine-tuning necessary for life to exist on the planet is nothing compared with the fine-tuning required for the universe to exist at all. For example... Astrophysicists now have come to the conclusion of what I was saying about here, that there are four fundamental forces. So gravitational force, electromagnetic force, and a strong force, and a weak force, weak nuclear force, and a strong nuclear force. Now, if 
you were to determine uh, these these forces were determined less than one millionth of a second after the Big Bang. So alter any one value of these forces, any one of, of these forces, the universe could not exist. For instance, if the ratio between the nuclear strong force and the electro electromagnetic force had been off by the tiniest fraction of the tiniest fraction, Eric Wright, by even one part to 10, uh, 10 to the power of 17. That's the number of seconds that have gone past since the universe began. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very, very tiny and comprehensible number. If you could move the dial just one part out of 10 to the power of 17, then no stars could, 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 be, could, have, could have formed at all. Mm. And no stars means no sun, no planets, no, nothing. Nothing, yeah. And so if you then take and multiply that single parameter by all the other necessary conditions, the odds against the universe existing are so heart-stoppingly astronomical, Eric writes, that, that the notion that it all just happened defies common sense. Mm. Now, here is the man who, who coined the term Big Bang, Fred Hoyle. Yeah. Sir so Fred Hoyle, very, very brilliant uh, mathematician and physicist. So Hall is an astronomer. Uh, here's what he says. That when they came, the scientists came across this discovery, he said his atheism was greatly shaken. Mm. And later on, he said, I quote, a common sense of interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics as well as with chemistry and biology. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to be so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. The conclusion that a super intellect has monkeyed with the numbers, mm. he says it's almost beyond question. Yeah. Now, this is Fred Hoyle. He's an atheist. Yeah. He said his atheism was greatly shaken by the development. Here is uh, he's Paul Davis. He's actually an Australian. Uh, Paul Davis, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he says, the appearance of design is overwhelming. Now, D John Lennox is one of my favorite. He's an emeritus professor at Oxford University. Uh, John Lennox, right, he's written Seven Days That Divide the World and, you know, His Science Disproved God. It's fantastic books. I've got all of these books in my library. It's great. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And... Um, his, he writes, is that the more we get to know about our universe, the more the hypothesis that there is a creator gains in credibility as the best explanation for why we're here. Mm. And so you can see here that the amount of design and the, the, the kind of balance which scientists call fine-tuning for life to even be possible in our universe required not just simply the number of planets and how many quintillions of them there are, but even from the very beginning after, straight after the Big Bang, one millionth of the second. Now, could you imagine, a, a, when, you, when you try to work out a second, you go, 1,001, that's, yeah. that's a second. Yeah. That's how I was taught when, you know, driving with you in, on a highway, you know, you, you try to stay, you know, at least four seconds behind the car, that is in front of you, you go mm. 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, 1,004, then, then you, okay, you know that you're a safe distance. 
But think about the one millionth of a second. So these constants and quantities were there at the very beginning. Otherwise, the laws of nature would not even have been able to function for us to have a universe. Yeah. And so that, from a scientific point of view, tells you that even... Now, Fred Hoyle or, or Paul Davis don't believe in God. They don't. No. But I can guarantee you they have other reasons why they, they're not going to... Because when Fred Hoyle says there is a super intellect that is mankind with the, with the data, this is beyond question, you're like, well, yeah, if it's beyond question, then what's the problem then? Why yeah, don't you exactly. believe? Why, why are you still an atheist? <laughs> <laughs> what's holding you back? This, this is why, of, of, you know, of, if there's a quote I could find... It was a quote by, by say, uh, Sir Medawa. Um, um, I'll, I'll find it before we, we finish. I always find these amazing quotes, and and just keep, keep keep them in my, uh, in, in it's like uh, in the, your quotable quotes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. like uh, you know the great Ravi Zacharias always had that. He had always a, 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 a book full of quotes, and he would pull them out, and and then they start a quote. So I'll find that quote in. in it won't take long, uh, you know. It's like most scientists now recognize that, well, now it is, it would be incomprehensible uh, for us to continue to posit that this happened just by chance. Mm. What always fascinates me with all of this stuff, Samuel, is that the, the, the truth is out there and there are people that know, um, but it doesn't leach back into the education system yeah. or into the minds of everyday people. Yes. So everyday people are still as ignorant. Actually, I think they're more ignorant they, yeah. uh, nowadays than they were even when I was at school. And right, you know, that right. wasn't all that long ago necessarily. Right. But um, – I mean, I found it a, a little bit um, hard to grasp a lot of the science and biology and all of that sort of stuff. Yes. I found it fascinating. Yes. Um, but, you know, when you when you really start to dig, yes. uh, people just go, oh, that's too hard. And they yeah, exactly. walk away. It's like, you know, you're getting dumber and dumber and dumber. And so you can be fed a lie and you can believe a lie um, or – and you can believe it because somebody told you, but but on whose authority on and on what real data and evidence have they given you that idea that you now you know have as truth in your life? I just exactly. it, it fascinates me that yeah. that we you walk around and if you want to have an intelligent conversation with someone, you actually can't because they have got no idea. Yes, so and it's it's this is why when when you're dealing with somebody just an atheist on the street, uh, you know who's just come to the conclusion there's no God, you ask them. If you reviewed any data, science, philosophically, anything that you can give to me, that at least because you've got a conclusion, yeah, and I want to know whether that conclusion is built on anything. And at you're all. basing your life on that. You're basing yes. everything in your life on this conclusion you have, yeah. and it's the wrong conclusion. Yeah, yeah. And so the more we study science, the more you come to the conclusion of this. I found a quote by oh, say, say, <laughs> you know, Peter Medawar. Uh, and and it was in in his book called Advice to a Young Scientist. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read it. There is no quicker way for a scientist to bring discredit upon himself and upon his profession than to roundly, than roundly to declare, particularly when no declaration of any kind is called for, that science knows or soon will know the answer to all questions worth asking. The question which do not admit a scientific answer are in some way 
non-question or pseudoscience. The only simpleton, uh, simpletons ask and only the gullible profess to be able to answer. The existence of a limit to science is, our med, however, made clear by its inability to answer childlike elementary questions, having to do with first and last things, questions such as, how did everything begin? Mm. What are we all here for? What is the point of living? Is it is too uh, it, it is it is too imaginative literature and religion that we must turn for answers to such questions. Yeah. Why did I bring this quote? Because you can find a fine scientist like Fred Hoyle, who, after having reviewed the data of science. And said, well, a super intellect must have monkeyed with the data. And yet, we'll still, let's say, they say, well, I'm still an atheist. Mm. Because while he's looking at the numbers, and, and the numbers lead to that reasonable conclusion, his mind is pretty much closed. He's got a closed mind. But he's also terrified to the idea that if he accepts that this super intelligent intelligence that monkeyed with the data <laughs> to make this fine-tuned universe his God... Now he has to move to the realm of religion. But it's not just the realm of religion. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, you, you watch those David Attenborough, Attenborough um, documentaries. Yes. The, the intricacy of the individual animals and plants and yes. fish and microbes and, oh, we will do and that. everything. We'll, you know, all we'll of that, analyze those. Yeah, all of that stuff. Yeah. You look at it and you think, isn't that amazing? Yeah. For me, it would be more like you'd be wanting to dig into that and say, well, okay, God's done this. Yes. How did he do that? Yeah, or, yeah. or, you know, and, and really sort of peel back some of those layers and get a real understanding yes. of, of God's purpose in things, yes. God's will over things, yes. uh, yeah, and how it all balances and comes together. Mm. That, to me, is far more exciting than something's just poof, you know, a, a arrived, yeah. and we have no real understanding why we've got no reason why yes. we're here. We've got no purpose to be here, you know. It's, it's just nothing. Yeah. And so you, you, you have here otherwise smart people like yeah. David Attenborough or Sir Fred, 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 you know, Fred Hoyle, otherwise very smart people. they just terrified to the idea, if there is God, then what does he expect of us? What does he demand of me? Yeah. And that becomes the question. So I want to finish this segment. We're going to be looking at. Uh, I, I will throw at you next, and when you come back, because I haven't. I want to start. Analyzing. You have only scratched the surface. Yes. So this is an introductory <laughs> note. Yep. But I, I want to, when we we're going to sort of look at what does it take for us to actually have this carbon-based life on 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 the planet, and what, mm. what are the things that we they're quite extraordinary. But I'm going to we're going to finish here. Psalm 19, uh, verse one, uh, which reads. The scripture writers write, the heavens declare mm. the glory of God, yeah. and the skies proclaim the works of his hands. Mm. And that is a beautiful way to finish. <laughs> so we're going to uh, dive deeper in all of this again next week. Um, so thanks again, Samuel, for, uh, for all your hard work to bring these subjects to us. And uh, we'll continue that discussion next week, as we say.